Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. In this episode, I'm joined by Abby Wambach for an extremely candid conversation that you will want to hear. Just a quick reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. Onward! Our guest today is one of the greatest soccer players of all time. Abby Wambach is a World Cup champion, a two-time Olympic gold medalist, and the all-time leading goal scorer in international soccer history. Wambach retired from playing in 2015, and she was recently announced as the founding chair of the advisory group for COPA 90 to guide its editorial talent and commercial plans for coverage of women's soccer as we move toward next summer's Women's World Cup. She also has a new book coming out next April called Wolfpack, which you can pre-order now. Abby, thanks for joining me. Grant, it is always a pleasure. I feel like we have have truly grown up over the last couple of (laughs) decades together in the game of football, (laughs) soccer, as Americans would know it. Um, I really, truly appreciate all that you do. And how you kind of stay involved in the game and how you re- you evolved from a, just a, a, a journalist to now a podcaster and also a TV analyst. Um, I just have really enjoyed watching you and appreciate all of your, um, you know, your comments and your insight and your, your experience and expertise. It's awesome. Thanks, Abby. I appreciate what you're doing, too. Uh, there's a lot to talk about here. We haven't done an interview in a little while. Um, I want to start by saying you've had sort of a public reemergence recently. It's not that you went into hiding or anything, but you're out there more lately publicly. Why did you decide to do that? Well, first of all, after I retired, you know, I I spent a long time trying to figure out what the heck it was I wanted to do, um, what it was I was going to be good at, what it was I was going to enjoy as a passion. You know, having played at the highest level for so long, um, my standards are unfortunately quite high for not just myself, but for my experience. And um, I definitely needed to step away from the game and um, really kind of reevaluate what I wanted in my life. And I think that that's why it kind of took me a, a little while to organize my thoughts and organize my feelings about what I wanted for the rest of my life. Because as you know, most women athletes, um, they actually have to reimagine and, and reorganize and, and to put themselves back into the work world, um, not because they want to, but because they have to. Um, so many male athletes don't have that same experience because they make enough money during their careers, and I wasn't one of those kind of, kind of players, um, kind of people, because unfortunately I play women's football. Um, and I think that I, when I retired with that understanding um, and also with the, the kind of level of expectation I have for my life, I wanted to make sure that I invested myself into the right things. Um, and before you can actually say, I'm going to do this thing, you know, when I retired, I was like, I want to change the world. I want to change the world. Well, I had no actual idea how the hell I was going to do that. So I had to, to figure out what I wanted and what I was good at. And, um, you know, last May, I found myself on the Barnard stage. Well, it was actually the Radio City Music Hall stage giving the uh, Barnard commencement speech. And that was a unique exercise for me because though I had been around the world giving speeches about my career, I was now being asked to speak um, as a leader of not just athletes, but a leader of women. And I, I really kind of dug deep into my national team um 
experience and what I learned there and how, you know, the national team is this beautiful ecosystem that when you're in it, you don't realize how good you got it and you don't realize what's going on. Uh, and until you get an opportunity to step away and get perspective and figure out, oh, we operate in different ways uh, inside the women's national team, that little cool ecosystem of like 23 badass women, type A, all of whom think that they're the best in the world. So there's, of course, it comes with some challenges, but um, for the most part, being a part of the women's national team was and is um, one of the things I'm most proud of. And also one of the things that grew me and made me the person that I am today. And I, and I was able to distill in this speech some of these ideas and methods of leadership um, that I found that not, not every person knows. Um, and, and, it's, and it's pushing the status quo and it's challenging these unwritten rules that the, the rest of the world kind of operates by. And so again, stepping myself back into whether it be a corporate space or um, any kind of existence, uh, I, I realized, oh, I operate differently than other people. And I think that these methods and rules have to be understood and taught on some level. So uh, my speech kind of went viral. And from that, from that point of view, I thought, oh, my gosh, this is something that I actually really love to do. I love to speak. I love to be out there and actually know something um, on some level that I didn't realize not everybody didn't know. Uh, so I put together this speech and it went viral and then it turned, I've turned it into a book and it's coming out in April. Um, you know, I've, I, and I've been putting myself more out there because that is what I think that the best form of leadership is, is putting yourself out there vulnerably, openly, um, and trying to get other people to understand that they aren't as alone as they might feel. Um, being on a team, I've been on a team my whole life. I've been on a team um, in my younger childhood with a huge family, and I've been on a team with a national team for so many years that when I stepped away from that, that, like, that was like the most glaring void in my life is people around me. So here I am trying to create my, my new team, right, the, the team of life, the team of women everywhere, um, and it's been a really amazing experience for me kind of transitioning hard as hell. Don't get me wrong, but transitioning from that, that to, to this. Well, the title of this next book is called Wolfpack, how women claim power, unite and change the game. Um, as someone who has written one book in the last like nine years and barely had the time to do that. I'm very impressed that you've had the time to write a second book in like three or four years. <laughs> um, <laughs> But this book, as I understand it, is coming out of that commencement speech. Could you explain a little more about uh, what's in this book? Yeah, you know, I think that I think that this book was born out of um, heartbreak, and and I'll give you a quick story, and and hopefully it's not too long. But I found myself at uh, at the SCs in 2016, um, and they. We're going to honor me with this icon award along with two of my other colleagues who are retiring the same year, Peyton Manning and Kobe Bryant. And I found myself on stage and I, I felt like, wow, this is amazing. I am standing next to Kobe and Peyton. Like I have finally arrived. You know, I was feeling really good about myself. Um, like we women, I, I felt like I was collecting this award for we women everywhere. Like we are here. Things are changing. Um, and then I had this really sobering moment that when I walked off stage, I was very clear and aware 
that all three of us were walking into very different futures and very different retirements. And I think that we all can understand what was the, the glaring difference between the three of us. You know, those two had massive, massive checking accounts and actually probably savings accounts, both, whatever. Um, and, and, and here I was feeling grateful, right, to be on stage and feeling like, wait, this doesn't make sense. Why, why am I feeling grateful? I'm now having to completely recreate my life because I have to worry about paying my mortgage. And it dawned on me that this is the story of every woman everywhere. This isn't just women's professional athletes, female professional athletes. This is every woman everywhere. You know, on average, it takes a woman who does the same job as a man um, 12 more years of working to earn the same income, which is incredible. It's an incredible statistic. Uh, and I think that when I allowed myself to truly feel that, that, that this disappointment of not having done more, um, truly feel what that just that gratitude left me with, I got really angry. I got really pissed off, Grant, you know? And I think that that anger is the thing that made me start realizing, oh, hold on a second. Women, myself included, right? I talked about how our women's national team, we operate in different ways that allow us to achieve really high levels of success with collective effort. But the truth is, is that we women everywhere still operate with these unwritten set of rules that keep the status quo. And so I started really digging into it and digging into the things that I've learned and why, why, why did I operate that way? And did that make sense? And is it right? Um, and so I started to, to figure out all of these leadership points that moments in my life that turned my mindset into um, true, true leadership tactic and true leadership collective effort that allowed our team to have success. Um, you know, things like demanding the ball. I had never, I had never really understood what that was until I saw Michelle Akers, you know, I was 18 years old and she was this 30 year old chiseled uh, women's national team player. I was on the youth national teams and she just, she took over this, this small sided drill that we were doing because her team was losing. And she just said, give me the effing ball. And I was like, first of all, terrified uh, along with the rest of my 18-year-old teammates. Um, but there this woman was, like, having complete agency for what not for not only her leadership, but what she knew she needed to bring to the game to change the course of whatever was going to happen for the betterment of her team. I had never seen something like that before. I, and I talk about in, in this book, Making Failure Your Fuel. And, you know, we really do talk about, like, oh, well, the only thing you can do, the best way to learn in life is failure. But actually, it's what you learn from failure that makes you who you want to become. Um, it's taking the lessons and, and the life um, lessons from the failures of your life and turning it into the fuel that actually will propel you into becoming the most best version of yourself. Um, you know, and I think that when we talk about some of these old rules and new rules and the, the way that I want the women who read this book and the way that I want these leadership um, techniques and philosophies to get put out into the world is I really want people to understand that there are old ways of operating that we are, are all victim to both men and women. Uh, and it doesn't have to be that case. Right. So, so when we talk about wanting actual change, a lot of us actually are operating in insane 
capacities, right? Like operating with the, the, the definition of insanity is, is, is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And I think that that is how um, things never change is doing things over and over again and expecting a different result. So, so this book is an opportunity for women to learn and also to, to put their flag in the sand and say, you know what, no more. Like I want more out of my life and I want more um, equality and I want, I want more respect and I want more, I want equal pay. Um, that's what this book is, is put out into the universe. And my hope and my intention is, is for women to feel more powerful and more like themselves and bringing their whole soul self to whatever it is they're doing. Because in my opinion, I do believe that the rebalancing of, of women into higher leadership positions and, and women gaining more power, not just outwardly, but inwardly will help rebalance the scales so that scales so that we can actually have some, so much less divisiveness and, and more collective unity. You have a three-part video that's out for COPA 90 that includes you speaking to Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy with the hashtag Rethink the Ratio. I've watched the first two episodes that are out. They have a lot of straight talk from you guys about your experiences over the years. How would you describe what it is and what does Rethink the Ratio mean? Yeah, when I stepped away from the game and I had that, that moment stepping off the stage at the SBs, I decided then and there that I was going to dedicate the rest of my life to making sure that all women everywhere um, don't have the same experience that I had of, of, of sheer terror going into whatever transition we're talking about um, from, from high school to college, college to the real world, professional sports or, or one job to another. I just, I really will only be a part of things that will help women cultivate and claim the power that they have so that they can change their experience for the better. I mean, I don't think people know this, but um, 40% of all professional athletes in the United States are women. Only 4% of those, of, of all media um, impressions are actually of women athletes. That's abysmal when you think about statistically. And I think that the way that the reason why I wanted to part, partner with Copa 90 is because they, from the inside out, from their internal core of who they are as, as uh, a media company, they want to put out content that isn't skewed, right? That isn't um, thrown, thrown a pink uh, border on, on online and call it a women's football podcast or want, call it a, a women's football video. They like actually want to put their money and intention into creating content that is um, professional and that looks cool. So partnering with them and getting Mia and Julie to sit down with me and talk about some of the stuff and, and rethinking the ratio, you know, I believe deeply that um, the way that we think about things, the way that we have been, uh, the way that the media is portrayed, the way that women are portrayed through time memorial creates this idea, creates this, this mentality that women actually do deserve less because they don't sell as many tickets at the stadium or that, um, or that, oh, they don't get the big TV contracts, so they don't deserve as much money. It's just this capitalistic supply-demand argument that I just think is such BS, and I think we're so beyond that, because if you actually believe deeply in your heart that, um, that, that people deserve to be treated equally, right, and you talk about FIFA 
as as an organization and U.S. soccer as an organization, and you look deeply into the to the to the bones of what their mission is. Their mission is to grow the game. Their mission isn't to just grow the game for capitalistic gain and and grow the men's game. The, the mission is to grow the game, and and I think that it it speaks volumes about the company that Copa ninety is and what kind of content they want to create so that they put the right kind of messaging out into the world. Um, because, you know, it's, it's the, the cause and effect. If you don't get on board now with making sure that you are treating all of your consumers with respect and dignity and honor, um, your company won't be in existence for very long. And I think that that's a huge reason why I wanted to partner with Copa90 and um, why I'm so proud to be a part of them and their growth, and their vision. What else specifically are you planning to do with Copa90 ahead of Women's World Cup? Well, these are really good questions. Um, the good news is uh, the conversation around Women's World Cup France is, um, is beautiful, and they're talking about putting real money into creating and, and cultivating these women's stories because, you know, a lot of people just don't know about what women have to do around the world, not just in the United States, um, though their, their story is amazing and it's super inspiring, but like we can talk about Jamaica, you know, making their first and qualifying for, for their first women's world cup. Um, and, and their players don't make any money, but yet now FIFA has given them $4 million um, to, to train and prepare for this lead up. And, and so how can we, positively showcase some stories so that women, not just the women that are involved, but women everywhere feel like they're being represented. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, the beauty of what we can accomplish with telling stories and telling women's stories um, is for people to understand what, what women's football, when women's footballers actually go through. Some women don't get paid uh, because their federations are not solvent and they're not, um, they're not, they don't pay their women. They don't, the women don't have the contracts. So this is also an opportunity for me as an activist and somebody who wants to continue to push the game forward um, to showcase some of these stories because some of these federations have never been held accountable, you know, and, and that's why partnering with like a Copa 90 who tells beautiful stories and has a really unique niche in terms of the way that football and the story of football gets told. And I think that that's the dream and the vision of, of their leader, Tom. And, and, and that is why I want to be a part of this because, you know, my opinion and the way that I have seen and the experience that I've had, I can be an executive producer. I can, I can come up with ideas and I'm going to be over there. Um, and not only cheering on team USA, but like this beautiful, um, idea, what this thing could be. Uh, it's just, it's super inspiring and something I'm like really, really proud of. Uh, and I can't wait to see it kind of continue to evolve because it's just, you know, I've, I'm, I'm just recently brought on, on board and so much is happening and there's so many things that I'm getting caught up with. Um, but all of it is like super supreme and, and really positive and I, I'm just really thrilled to be a part of it. One thing I like about uh, this three-part video with, that includes Ham and Fowdy is the crew is all female, which as anyone who works in television knows is sort of a rare thing. Um, I did want to ask though about the partner that you have with this Copa 90 video is Uber. 
And Uber, especially under its previous CEO, has a bit of a checkered past on how it treats women. Now, you are able to get your message out here, but did that come up when you decided to partner with Uber on this? Yeah, of course it did. And I think that that's exactly why, you know, people want to want to stay away. Like this is this is the beauty of where we're at with any kind of social justice or or cause that you are fighting for. People want to stay away from the problem child, right? So to speak. But the truth is they've changed leadership at Uber. And this is not this, literally this is not me doing a, an advertisement for Uber. This is me talking about my philosophy of why I wanted to do this with Uber and with Copa90 is because they are the ones who need not just not the exposure, but they are the ones that need to put their money where their mouth is, right? So we did this shoot and I actually stepped on stage. I had no idea it was going to be an all-female crew. And I got there and I was like, whoa, something's super different. Like, what is going on? Everything is like very calm and organized and this is not to to say that men and and male dominated crews are not calm and organized it just is in my experience that they never have been um (laughs) so (laughs) i i was actually kind of astonished at like how different it actually felt um and and this is what i think is really important i don't want to ever shy away because i fear people judging me or i fear um, you know, I do things very intentionally and I know that, uh, Uber has a desire to be better and I want to be a part of, of, of the problem solving of things. And I think that sometimes you got to get, you got to get, you know, roll up your sleeves and get dirty a little bit in order to get into the crux of what the issues are and to show that, that these kind of things can work if done, even, even completely differently than they've done they've done them in the past you know so it was such a beautiful exercise not for me specifically but for all the people on set that day you know myself and julie and mia and you know i walked off set and i just was like that was an incredible day because it gave me an understanding that that is actually possible and so what that also does is give me an understanding that i can go and start putting these inclusion riders in some of my contracts and say you know what Mm -hmm. i've done this before and this, this doesn't give a, another company or a business that I do work with an opportunity to say, no, no, that, that doesn't work. That, that will never work because I've done it. And, and Uber was the kind of the, the, the ability for me and, and that, that experience was the ability for me to be like, hey, look, I've actually done it and this works and it was beautiful. Um, and and, and my, believe me, my, I am not like anti-men or men at all because I do believe that men are totally a part of this process. But in order to find actual equality, there's times where you have to push against certain things and showcase that you can do things alone before you start to invite um, the counterparty into the actual solution. And I think that that's what this was for us. Um, it was really cool. And I'm, I'm so happy that I, I had that experience. And I'm so glad that I have that experience going forward to be able to showcase with um, with other companies that, that I'll be doing work with and that Copa90 will be doing work with that it is possible. I follow you on social media, Abby. It seems pretty clear that the biggest change in your life over the past couple years is getting married to Glennon Doyle, who, like you, is a New York Times bestselling author. What's Glennon like, and how has she influenced you? Oh, my God. Thank you for asking about her, because I love her so much. And um, this is, like, my most fun thing to ever talk about. Um, You know, I think that the thing when I first met Glennon that was my biggest struggle was um, I had just gotten the DUI and 
was really struggling to figure out how I was going to to deal with that first of all, uh, and then and then dealing with these issues that I was having internally and um, the however you want to define your own circumstance, I was having really issue a lot of issues figuring out my addiction problem to alcohol. And that problem created tons of other problems in my life um, that, uh, that I had to really do some serious work around. And when I met Glennon, she was, you know, 14 years sober, 15 years sober. And she was just like one of those visions for me of possibility. Um, and, and what started as a friendship turned into a relationship and turned into a marriage and turned into what it is now. And, you know, I think that she is one of the, the few people in the world in my mind that is truly trying, trying to go after and dig into the weeds of life and trying to figure out, okay, why are we so divided? Um, why is this, why, why are we in this experience right now? You know, the 2016 presidential election happened and, um, you know, women started to get, uh, a little bit more, you know, misogyny started to rise and, and racism and white supremacy and all of these things that my wife is fearless and unafraid to kind of figure out and learn and educate herself um, around some of these topics. And, and she's created this beautiful community of badass women leaders in their own homes and their own communities. Um, and the way that she's done it is just ethically authentic and radically um, honest. And I think that, that, that me meeting her was the best thing that had ever happened to me. Um, because what she shows me every day isn't, isn't just a sober life. It's actually being sober is what makes life beautiful and, um, connected and hard and, um, human, you know? And, and I think that that was the thing that I had been running from for so long is this whole idea of, of, of being a human and experiencing serious pain or, or upsetness or trauma or fear, um, she's like a big proponent of, you know, the human experience is all things. And, um, and I think that for her once was the spiritual Christian journey has turned into this, this gorgeous community of, um, women who want to make the world better. Um, so often when you actually reach into women's hearts and you find, their loneliness and you find their heartbreak, you're able to actually cultivate this beautiful community of badass activist warriors. And she's done that. Um, she's such a, she's such a trip and such a fun mother. I mean, the best thing she ever does is, is parent our children. Um, I walked into our marriage and she and her ex had three children. So I am now, I became instant mom and it's been so awesome. Of course it's been, it was overwhelming at first trying to figure out, that entire life of um, parenting, but 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 it's been so fun because now I'm on the sidelines watching these two young our two young daughters play soccer, um, and our son who is just uh, an amazing kid and runs cross country. So it's just been really fun. Um, I've gotten really used to being kind of a school bus driver, just driving them everywhere. I I didn't know that that was going to be a part of my life. Um, when I first met Glennon, but I couldn't be happier about it now that I now that I do it. 
Now, I've got a couple more questions for you, but I also, I should have known better. I mentioned 20 minutes to you before this started, and I respect your time. Do you have time for Come a couple on, more Grant. questions? Come on, Grant. You know that I talk long. <laughs> Keep going. Let's go. I should have known. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I really appreciate it. It's a fun conversation, as it always is. Um, your previous book, Forward, is one of the rawest athlete memoirs I've ever read. Uh, it reminded me of Andre Agassi's memoir, actually. Uh, and it gets into details of your experience uh, with addiction, among other things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When you look back on it now, are you glad you decided to approach the book that way? Yeah, and I think that the biggest reason, and I, honestly, when uh, I was writing the book, um, when I got arrested and realized I, I had to actually um, get sober, um, you know, it was kind of a battle that I had been silently fighting for a long time. And while writing the book, you know, you have a plan of uh, and an outline of, of how the story is going to arc and how you think it's going to begin, middle, and end. Um, and then this huge event happens that changes kind of what you know at the time to be probably the whole course of your life is now going to alter um, because of this one single moment. And you can't like omit it, right? Like this is supposed to be um, a memoir of my life uh, and, and a chronological kind of event, event by event basis. Um, so you can't leave out this big part. So I actually, the, the first question I asked Glennon when I first met her was I don't know how to explain what happened um, because as an athlete and as a, as a public figure, um, I had learned over the years that, you know, you only share with people what you want them to know. Though I'm very open and had been very open, I'd been living this secret life for a long time and I wasn't really comfortable um, telling the, the, the world about it because I actually hadn't really learned or knew all about it myself. Um, and I think that one of the things at the beginning that Glennon had said to me, she said, you know, it's the, the secrets that kill addicts, right? It's the secrets that create um, the shame around our addictions. And the secrets are like the, the kiss of death as it relates to all addicts. So she said, you know, and, on all, and if you've read anything that Glennon has written, she's, she's radically honest and um, all the way out there. And she's talked about her addiction issues, you know, the decade and a half before we had met um, very clearly. And so she had experience in this. And so I was very interested in what she had to say. And I think that that really stuck with me is that, you know, secrets are the kiss of death. And it's not just for addicts. They're, they're, they're um, made into addictions for addicts, right? Because whatever we're holding inside, um, whatever kind of stuff we're going through, is um, going to come out at some point. And I think that for me, I just, I, I wasn't at the place in my life to be able to handle that. So, so back to writing the book and, and wanting to uncover all this stuff, it was actually more cathartic and a, and a therapeutic exercise for me to do it in the way that I did. Um, you know, I think if I were to go back and to, to, to change anything, I would probably focus a little bit less on my relationship with my mom because I think a lot of my problems that I was going through um, were in large part because of some of this uncovered and deep down issues that I had with my relationship with my mom that I 
I've kind of since resolved internally um, because mm-hmm. of my sobriety and that has that has allowed me and freed me up quite a bit. So um, I wouldn't I wouldn't change anything about what I kind of released in, into the world about my um, my problem with alcohol and some of the prescription pills that that uh, I, I started to abuse and you know I think that that kind of stuff. Because the secrets are the things that kill you. And, the, and and I do know, like, it actually gives me retroactive stress thinking about holding any of that stuff in because eventually it would come out. Eventually it would it would come out in some way, right? Um, and, I, and I've just been kind of an open book ever since. So I, I feel really proud of that book. It was an exercise in bravery and courage um, in a much way than I had ever experienced courage and bravery before. Um, and, and, you know, the first couple of months after the release of that book, just hearing from one or two people, um, every, every appearance or event that I would do saying, you know, I read your book and it really, it allowed me to get super real about my own, my own issues that I've had or parents that have come up to me and say, you know, I bought your book for my, my kid. And I think that they're struggling with some stuff that you were struggling with and, this book has really helped them. Um, you know, those are the kind of things that remind me that I wasn't just a soccer player, that my leadership um, has and will hopefully continue to extend beyond um, beyond the, the, the field. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm proud of it. It was, it was a labor of love for sure. And I, I agree with you from the top of, the, uh, of this conversation. I cannot believe after that experience of writing the book that I'm actually... <laughs> writing another one right now um i'm instantly regretting the process because it is not fun is brutal and um you know i am not a writer like i i am not by nature somebody who likes to sit down and like read what i've written over and over and over again and that's what you know the editing process is and and especially when we're talking about this kind of stuff um where it's so uniquely my own philosophy and there's only one person who can truly edit this thing. Um, it's been brutal, but it's, it'll be worth it in the end because I think, um, you know, the manuscript, manuscripts turned in and now it's just kind of the cover art and all the things that are kind of quote unquote trivial to the process. Like the meat is in, the, the bones are in. Um, and I honestly, I couldn't be more proud of what this book hopefully can do. Um, not just with, women everywhere, but I think men can actually learn um, quite a bit from from the perspective of what women go through. And also, you know, from time immemorial, women have been needing to, to switch the, and flip the perspective of books written, right? Books written by men, books written by men, leadership books written by men. So, like, I encourage all men out there um, who are listening to this that if they see this book, pick it up even just leaf through it at the bookstore and see if it fits for you. Because I would, I would argue that, um, you know, this is not just a book for women, though it is written from the perspective of a woman. Um, this is for, for all people who are trying to better the communities that, that, that they're in, taking a team from where they are to where they ought to be. I always said the best part of writing, including and especially book writing, is being done. So congrats on getting yes. the manuscript in. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Good God. I wanted, to ask your, I wanted to ask your opinion on a couple things connected to FIFA. Uh, it recently mm-hmm. came out that FIFA had allowed CONCACAF and CONMEBOL to schedule their men's continental finals 
next July on the same day as the Women's World Cup final. We also saw FIFA release the prize money information for the Women's World Cup. On the one hand, it's doubling from 15 million total to 30 million. But the gap between the prize money for the Men's World Cup and the Women's World Cup has actually increased now over the last four years. What's your take on all that? Well, I don't know if I can swear on this podcast. Um, oh, but yeah. It's bullshit. You know, it's just bullshit. And I, I'm so... I, I'm beyond angry that, um, that the women will have to share a day that their final is on uh, with two other major championship days. Um, you know, it's just... A, it, it's literally the biggest slap in the face that FIFA um, can can throw at at the women um, for for every kind of reason and and I mean I've actually been pretty outspoken and I'm trying to figure out the next best steps at creating a campaign um, to boycott all of the FIFA sponsorships because uh, I just think that like the only way FIFA will get it is if they actually feel it financially. Um, and, you know, FIFA has loads and loads and loads of money. And the final and, and two other games being played in the same day. Um, and then them increasing the, the prize money. But, oh, wait, hold on a second. It's actually increasing pay gap. Like, what kind of change are you trying to make? And what kind of messages are you... I am sick of always trying to explain to myself, like, let alone the world. I am so sick of trying to explain to myself that we deserve, like, I have to talk myself into it at times because we're getting all of these constant um, messages from the world, from FIFA, from the government, from whoever, that we actually are less than human. And for me, it's just, I don't know when it's going to end and I don't know how the hell we can actually hold FIFA accountable. It seems like they're the governing body of the world of everything. Um, and it seems like they're, it seems like their pockets are so deep that, um, it'll be an act of miracle, an act of God, whatever your God is or however you believe in the world to be, it will have to be an act that something to actually change. And change methods, I mean, we're talking about crazy amounts of money when um, differentiating between the men and the women's game, you know? And, and here's the thing, like, though I think that equality is, is a belief system that we all, we all either have or you don't have, I believe that there needs to be a real conversation between all of the, the women players and because they fear missing out, they fear um, getting cut, they fear being like being the one that rocks the boat. Guess what? Because and the reason why I know this is because I was one of those people. I realized too late that we have to collectively come together. The only time the women's national team ever made true movement forward is when they collectively came together and said, "Enough is enough." You know, you have to look at the mission statement for what FIFA is and what they want to do with the game of football. Um, and why aren't we holding them accountable to that mission? They are so far beyond, and, and it, feels, it feels like 
it feels so much more deep to me than disrespect. Um, it feels like, and, and, and also deeper than an injustice, it feels actually legal to me that they are able to do what they are, are doing, have been doing for decades. Because they're, what they're doing is they're oppressing women and they're oppressing people from actually being able to fulfill their obligation and fulfill their talent, fulfill what they want to do here on planet Earth. Um, I get fired up about this. And, you know, and I, I, and I just, I want women to have an opportunity. Like, give us a freaking chance. And also, like, I understand the argument, like I said before. I get it. Like, the, the Men's World Cup has all the sponsors and well okay so nothing then will ever change is that what we're saying that we that we eventually don't want anything to ever change because the world is perfect right now like give me a break like it feels like the world is like a minute away from ending and everybody's like ever oh everything's fine like we just want things to stay the same like that's bullshit like we need to actually start thinking about like what we want for our future for the future of of not just our children, but like their children. I don't know. It's just, it's disappointing. And I'm disappointed for the women. I'm disappointed for myself. Um, you know, I mean, it's great job security for me, but fuck, I want this to be over. I want like people to actually see and respect women. And, and if you do believe that you respect women, then pay women. Yeah. One thing that, and I thought a lot about this over the last few years, about, you know, on the one hand, I'm a reporter, and so I'm kind of proud I was able to break the news on the new uh, prize money from FIFA. On the other hand, uh, I'm also a columnist. I've got opinions. And uh, I feel like, from an opinion perspective, this isn't nearly enough, what FIFA's doing with the prize money. And a lot of things come up on Twitter, for example, whenever I report about this stuff, and it's always guys, <laughs> I always, always of course. guys, who want to say stuff like, oh, so you think that WNBA players should be paid as much as NBA players? That's one thing they often say. Um, and they'll say, uh, this needs to be related to uh, revenues produced. Now, one thing that I have come to believe is... There's a big difference between for-profit leagues, like clubs, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and non-profit organizations. So mm-hmm. there's a big difference between WNBA and NBA and FIFA and the U.S. national teams. Those are non-profits. And their job, as you mentioned earlier, is to grow the sport. And to grow it for half the world's population as much as the other half of the population yep. and invest in it with what appear to me based on what I've seen from FIFA's financials they got a lot of money so yep. do I think this is where I am right now but I don't have all the answers right so where I am right now is I feel like revenues produced should have some influence on pay from US soccer and FIFA but it shouldn't be a situation like a for-profit enterprise, like the WNBA or the NWSL. Of course, um, of course. And I totally agree with you, Grant. And I think that, that, I think that there has to be um, 
some accountability of that, right? Because if we want to actually talk about that, then there was a year that the women's national team actually earned more than men's national team. And so, and then we're going to be starting comparing apples and oranges with years and, and, and the men make all this much more money because they're getting money from FIFA, right? Because FIFA gives each team a certain amount of dollars when they qualify for their world championship for the world cup. Now our men's team didn't qualify for this last world cup. So they didn't get that 9 million or 10, whatever the, the number was. Right. So, right. so from the top, like we have to see how this money does get trickled down. You can have the argument of TV rights deals. You can have the argument of, um, you know, for-profit non-profit. You have to actually just get into the mission of, whatever company or whatever nonprofit or for-profit venture we're talking about, okay? And then you have to look and see who that organization is trying to serve. Because I think at the end of the day, I I get the idea of capitalism. and I get the idea of for-profit ventures. But do you think that for Brianna Stewart to be making $57,000 a year, she was the league MVP, $57,000? dollars a year. Now, I don't know who the highest, I mean, I think it's, I think it's Stephen Curry. I think he's making the most right in the NBA. And I think the WNBA is a subsidiary of the NBA. So they are closely related. Um, Do I know that the women's teams, they, they may get fewer uh, attendance and they also have fewer TV deals. I don't know those specifics, but when we're talking about the difference between the highest paid player MVP for the NBA and the highest paid player MVP for the WNBA, and we actually look at those numbers, look, I, I know for a fact that these women are like, look, we don't need to be getting paid like Stephen Curry or LeBron James. That's not what, what they're asking for. They're asking to be seen and to be respected, right? Like, I'm sure that they would love to make millions of dollars, but they're not asking for that. They're asking for respect. And the way that you show respect for any marginalized person, right, is to pay them what they deserve and um, understand that the NBA owns the WNBA, right? And so those profits need to be getting trickled down. Even though this is a for-profit entity, you still have to build the entire brand. And when you're talking about women's basketball, you're also talking about a ton of women's little basketball players that will potentially grow the game, right? So talking about um, future planning for business for for for-profit ventures, you have to actually think about, okay, how are we going to actually continue to grow this brand and make it the best thing as we possibly can? Now, from from a women's soccer perspective, the mission of U.S. soccer is to grow the game. It's a nonprofit entity and it's their responsibility to make sure that the dollars, right? Cause think about it this way. Every kid that plays youth soccer, they pay into the, to this U S soccer system, every girl and every boy, they pay into the system. And if you actually were to mathematically add up all of those dollars, those dollars are not getting divvied up completely equally on the women's side of things. And I think that that is really, really important. And, and, you know, all the people who want to argue to keep the things the same are afraid of growth, are afraid of change. And, and on some deep level, I understand that. 
Um, but here's the thing, like women are not trying to take away any money or, or make the pie smaller for, for men athletes. Um, what we're trying to do is we're trying to make sure that the money gets allocated properly. And we, we are telling you a sucker, you can actually make the pie bigger because guess what? You've got money too, right? You've got money to grow the game. And part of growing the game is this trickle-down effect. And, and it's important that we talk about all the sides of it. And Grant, I appreciate your, your opinion. And I think that we have to be also really mindful because people are like, oh, I don't want to get political. Well, if you have a belief in anything one way or the other, you are political by definition. We're winding down here. Really appreciate this much time, Abby. Um, do you ever have any interest in working inside the system atop U.S. soccer or even the women's side at FIFA? Um, you know, or would you prefer to be on the outside? Uh, that's a good question. I, I mean, I, I, I've been asked a couple of times now um, if I would have any interest in, in the inner workings of FIFA and or U.S. soccer. From what I've heard... Um, FIFA doesn't seem like it would be the entity that would have any kind of um, mobility that you would actually get anything done. I think U.S. soccer has been the biggest proponent, uh, along with the German Federation, of women's football. And so if there, was a, if there was an entity I would ever sit inside of to try to grow and make even better, um, it would for sure be U.S. soccer. I, I just don't know if FIFA is quite ready yet. They don't really operate under the same kind of um, women empowerment um, methods that, that the women's national team in the U.S. and U.S. soccer has understood to be part of our culture and our society and our system. Um, and then also that being said, like, I really love my life and the lifestyle I have been living um, I'm ramping in. I, I'm, I'm, I've created a leadership company that goes into the corporate world and um, tries to instill these leadership tactics and, and rules um, with a champion my athletic mindset in, into women in the corporate world so that they can become the best versions of themselves and the best leaders that they possibly can see themselves to be. So from, a, from like a perspective of just like logistics, I don't really have time right now um, mm -hmm. to dedicate any of my resources or mind or heart to trying to, to solve for any problems that the women's national team is experiencing at this second. I'm trying to do it from the outside and I don't, I don't foresee um, even in the near future, any of that changing, but I do see down the road, um, getting involved, staying involved in, in some ways, whether it be helping with um, technical directing or um, even, even in bigger positions. I'm not, I'm not really quite sure how my influence or help could provide the best effect. Um, you know, I'm open to a lot of things, but right now I just have to focus on what I'm doing because I think that you have to build something um, that's stable and um, for me to be able to point to, to be like, look, I have all this experience off the field that I can actually add value to the inner workings of, the, of, of a U.S. soccer or, or one day a FIFA. Who knows? My last question for you, Abby, is actually an on-the-field question. Um, Canada's Christine Sinclair is approaching your all-time international goals record. How does that make you feel? 
Oh, man, I'm so pumped for her. I mean, I think from, like, a competitor, elite athlete perspective, right, like, I'm like, ooh, like, there's a part of me that, like, is is sad to see this record go, but there's also a bigger part of me that's like, you know what, this is actually the part of what I want to see for the future of the game. Um, My hope is that I can do something with Copa 90 in and around um, her breaking the record, uh, because I think it would be a beautiful story to be told from my perspective, you know, watching the games, uh, the lead-ups for her, the, the, the excitement I'm sure she's feeling and, and getting kind of inside of her mind um, around that. So that's, that's, um, that's an exciting idea that, that, that I'm going to hopefully bring to the table. Um, and we'll see how and when it goes. You know, I, I mean, what a beautiful idea and an opportunity for her for it to come true, maybe in her last World Cup uh, for Team Canada, um, maybe you know it's a, maybe she scores scores the world breaking record against Team USA, but USA wins right and goes on and plays in the World Cup final. Like that's kind of how I envision it, where it's like um, a win win for everybody involved. <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, like I want nothing but the best for her because you know she has been probably the most underrated um, national team player in the world in the history of the game. Uh, I think she's one of the best players that have ever put on cleats and, and donned a jersey for her country. And um, I'm excited for her. And I'm also, um, you know, excited to see how this could, like, all kind of go down. And, you know, I wish nothing but the best for her. Abby Wambach is the founding chair of the advisory group for COPA 90 to guide its editorial talent and commercial plans for coverage of women's soccer as we move toward next summer's Women's World Cup. She has a new book coming out next April called Wolfpack and currently has a three-part video out called Rethink the Ratio with Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy. Abby, I kept you on here far longer than I told you I would. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Abby Wambach as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Just a quick reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. And check out the 30-minute Planet Football video show hosted by me and Luis Miguel Echegaray on SITV. That's available on SI.TV, Amazon Channels, and Fubo TV. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network, the number one daily sports podcast network? Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.